Um, we just want to shout it from the rooftops that Jesus is king, and that's the reason why we, you know, it's intimacy with him. That's where it starts. It's unity with him. And so this series is really, it's breaking ground for us. Today's topic is a hot topic. And so I pray that you have open ears, open hearts to hear what Michael has to say as we journey on this, as it changes us, as we grow closer and closer to Father God. That's what it's all about. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Michael. bodies even, and I think that's really cool. Haynes, you've got a whole lot better looking apparently as well over the series, so. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Um, but yeah, it's just been, uh, certainly the series has not been um, uh, easy for me. Uh, it has been challenging. It has challenged me personally, and um, you know, I think at different times over the last couple of weeks I've just wanted to be sort of honest and vulnerable with you guys about how it's been affecting me. Um, and uh, I saw someone this week um, who, um, you might need to grab him. Oops, fluffy bit. Sorry. Okay. Uh, I saw someone this week. I, d I didn't um, recognize him, but he came up to me and said, uh, I, I was at your church on Sunday, um, and he said, I just sort of randomly came, and he said, man, you got guts. <laughs> so, um, but he said to me, he said, I I've been in church my whole life, and I've never, ever heard anyone talk about sexuality like that before. So um, he, he said to me, I wish, I wish, I wish I had heard that before I had kids. So, if you weren't here last week or over the last couple of weeks, I really encourage you, go back and, and listen. This message is not a message in isolation. Um, this is all part of one holistic picture of sexuality. And uh, in all honesty, we are just cr scratching the surface. I could preach on this all year, quite comfortably. Um, because all of this is really pointing to who is God and who are we? What does it really mean to be human? What does it mean to have a soul? What does it mean to have needs? What does it mean that our needs can only be found in the Creator? And so, you know, it's, there's so much more to it. So I want to start this morning um, just by reading a couple of passages. Um, so we've got a couple of um, passages that we'll do our reading. They should come up on the screen as well. So I, I want to start with Luke um, 18 um, and verse 9. And this is um, Jesus talking about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Verse 9, it says, To some who trusted in their own righteousness and viewed others with contempt, he also told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, swindlers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I acquire. But the tax collector stood at a distance, unwilling even to lift up his eyes to heaven. Instead, he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. But for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who, might, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this moment that we have gathered here this morning. I I thank you that um, we have all come maybe with different expectations about this morning, about what we might hear, about what you might speak to us. Father, I pray above all else that we would see you clearly. Father, I pray that any scales that need to come off our eyes will come off so that we can see you clearly, so that we can see your kingdom, that we may be ambassadors, reconcilers, people that carry your message well. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So over the last two weeks, we have explored um, the, the two narratives that have basically have most influenced, influenced us in the Western church. Um, and, and I've coined these as the secular narrative and the purity narrative. And, and so the truth is we are, we are narrative beings. We are who we are because of the story we have believed about ourselves. And um, I think if we've been really honest with ourselves and each other, we might discover that both both of these narratives, both the secular narrative and the purity narrative, have influenced us significantly. 
In fact, I, I tend to believe that the reason why statistics in the church and outside the church are, are basically the same when it comes to uh, issues of morality, um, sexuality, um, marriage, um, I, I think it's because we have, by and large, a, as a Western society, l- tried to live out of a secular narrative while trying to obey the rules of the purity narrative. And, and it has actually, um, it has actually caused us a lot of harm. So I think we have to recognize what is our cultural moment. What, what, where are we at in, in culture? Where are we at in our society? What is our cultural moment? You know, there, there is the, the political and the religious culture war that's raging all around us. And, and it seems that right on the front lines of that war is the issue of sexuality. It's like a coin. I mentioned this last week. It's like a coin um, that has, you know, heads and tails on it. And it's like one side is, is yelling, it's heads. And then the other side's yelling, it's tails. But I, I believe as people of the kingdom, our, our, we need to actually stand that thing up on its head, up on its, on its end, and actually walk the narrow path. And, and there's only one way that we can do that. And that is when we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, when we walk closely with God and we walk with people. It's almost like, have you ever thought about whenever um, families go through, um, and I realize this can be a sensitive topic, but when a family goes through a divorce or, or something like that, there's normally this battle between the two parents. And, and the, the, pe- but the people that suffer the most in that are actually the children. And I feel like we need to get down a little bit out of the culture war and actually realize that there are people suffering right in our midst. And as people of, re- of the message of reconciliation, our job is to walk with those people. We need to rise above the culture war. See, it seems that both these sides are fighting to be the dominant voice, to be the loudest voice. And I want to say this, and I want you to hear, hear me with this. The church does not need to have the loudest voice. It just needs to be the most redemptive voice. So as we approach the the topic of um, LGBTQ, um, and and I'm giving uh, this message the title, A Better Way Forward, um, I, I want us to, to think about, well, first, actually, I, w- I want to say this, that I actually feel really, really uncomfortable um, talking about people. Uh, and so I feel, I, I, what I don't want to do this morning is other a certain group of people and make it about them and just spend the morning talking about them. As much as possible, I want to include us. I want to say we, us. This is not about another group. This is about us as a church. This is about us as human beings. And so um, Eleanor Roosevelt said that big people or big-minded people talk about ideas, but small-minded people talk about people. And so I want to take a moment, first of all, just to honour those that, that are from the LGBT community that are with us today. Ones that have been brave enough to walk into a church. I want to honor them. And so I'm, glad that, I'm glad that you are here. Whether you are open about your identity or whether you're hiding it, I'm glad that you are here.
So I want us to ask a really important question as we start this morning, um, and it's this. As I talk about LGBT, I want to ask you, what is your gut reaction? What is your gut reaction this morning? Is it outrage? Is it disgust? Is it fear? Is it compassion? Is it empathy? Maybe you're just numb. Maybe you just simply don't even want to think about it. You hope that you can just put your head in the sand and hope that this all goes away. Uh, or maybe you're, you're thinking, I, I really want to be loved, but I'm just not sure how. So what I will not be doing this morning is preaching to tickle any ears. I will not be preaching to fuel any outrage that you have in your heart. I will not be preaching to tickle the ears of the self-righteous and proud. I will not be preaching to tickle the ears of a judgmental heart. And so if you feel inside of you this morning, that's right, Michael, tell them. I will tell you to quietly be quiet. Because the truth is this, whatever anger and outrage is helping you to achieve, love will do a far, far better job. I love this quote from Bruxy Cavey. He says, I grow more and more convinced that with every passing year that Jesus is the only coherent and compelling answer for the most urgent needs of this world. Whether we know it or not, God has built into our very soul a moral compass to which Jesus is the true north. So I want us to just, as I have with every message, let's just start again with the posture of humility. Philippians 2, we went through this, the mind of Christ, he humbled himself, he came as a servant, even unto death. And he said, in every relationship, have the mind of Christ. Humble yourself. Serve, even unto death. Preston Sprinkle, in a recent article addressing polyamory, he, he said this. He said, we want leaders to construct a robust biblical and pastoral response that's rooted in God's vision for marriage and sexual expression, seasoned with grace and eager to help people live into the divine image we've been created because if we don't bleed for actual people, whatever their sin, we shouldn't be pastors. And I want to push that a step further and say if we don't bleed for actual people, we shouldn't bear the name of Jesus. See, truth's potency is not in the facts, it's in its embodiment. And the church is called to embody Jesus. And as we do that, we reveal his heart, we reveal his love, we reveal his grace, and we reveal his truth. And our significance is not found in what we do, but it is found in who we reveal. And so I'm becoming increasingly convinced that our role as image bearers, as ambassadors of Christ, is to be a witness to the kingdom of heaven wherever we are. And so if we are the people that are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we have to acknowledge that this has to be embodied. If people... Need to, I mean, how, how will people know love unless the feet of Jesus walk to them? How will people know love unless the hands of Jesus embrace them? See, it's hard to convince people that a God they can't see loves them when the church they can see doesn't seem to like them. N.T. Wright said that the church is not a bunch of grinning fix-it people with all the answers. The church is the community that by, by the Spirit is learning to carry the cross, to share the pain, and to stand in the midst of a suffering world with the love of God in their hearts. 
I want to tell you this morning about a woman called Leslie. Uh, Leslie is, uh, lives in America, um, and she remembers since the age of four, um, always feeling a little bit different. Le- Leslie was a, a biological girl, but always felt and thought and acted like she was a boy. She loved being with boys, she loved playing sport, hanging out with boys, doing all the boy things and struggled to identify with her body as a female. She continued to wrestle with this increasing discomfort between her biological sex and how she felt, and then add into the mix of that her love for Jesus. Leslie loved church. She grew up in church. She loved Jesus. Right through her early teens, she was a committed believer, loving Jesus, but inside wrestling with her sexual identity and her commitment as a Christian. There was no avenue for her to talk about these things, no one to share her struggles with, and nothing was ever said from the pastor in her church on the topic until one Sunday, where the pastor disparaged, ridiculed, and spoke demeaningly about those who experienced same-sex attraction or wrestled with their gender identity. And Leslie said this, I felt like I was an abomination to the God that I adored. When Leslie was about 15, she finally got up the courage to go and talk to her pastor about what she was wrestling with and how she felt. Her pastor immediately stood up, opened the door and said, leave and never come back. Unfortunately, this is the story of millions of Christians around the world. In Luke 15, we see that the tax collectors and sinners were all seeking Jesus out. Um, And it's not that Jesus was pro-tax collector or pro-sin, it's that he is pro-people. And he is always willing to be seen with those that society has othered, even at the risk of being misunderstood. You see, every time that Jesus is standing with the broken, everyone misunderstands him. What are you doing with them? You can't be talking to the Samaritan at the well. Jesus is always willing to risk being misunderstood to show those whose society has othered that he loves them and that he cares. So as I journeyed through this, preparing for this series, I had to ask myself the question, Am I willing to risk being misunderstood to show those from the LGBT community that Jesus through me loves them? That I want to hear them, listen to them, see them, and pastor them? And you bet my answer was yes. So here is the question. Is the LGBT community seeking out Jesus? I believe the answer is yes. Yes, they are. But unfortunately, they are definitely not looking for him in the church. In the book Unchristian, Gabe Lyons did a ton of research over three years to determine what those outside of Christianity in the church thought about Christians. 
Um, this is uh, a study based in, in America, um, but like I said last week, unfortunately, most of our culture or Western culture is just shaped and modelled off American culture. Um, and so I think that it's very relative to us as well. Um, so one of the primary things that they discovered is that Christians were primarily known as political, hypercritical, judgmental, and most notable was that 91% of people outside of Christianity said Christians were primarily anti-homosexual. Dr. Michael Brown recently did a similar poll asking what were Christians primarily known for, and unfortunately, love was not one of them. So are LGBT people seeking out Jesus? Yes, they are, but by and large, the church has said you won't find him here. Preston Sprinkle tells of a friend of his who is same-sex attracted and wrestling with what it means to live surrendered to Jesus. Um, and he ran a, a study group um, uh, for people from the LGBT community in his college campus. And so he had a whole group of people regularly turning up uh, to that uh, Bible study to explore the Bible and see what it meant to, to follow Jesus. Um, he said that all of the, between all of the people turning up, he discovered that they had four things in common. And that was this. The first one was that they were all gay, lesbian, or trans. Um, the second one was that they were all hungry for God and want, wanted to know more about Jesus and the Bible. The third one was that every single one of them had contemplated or attempted suicide. And number four, all of them were scared to death to walk into a church. Preston goes on to say, scared, but not turned off apathetic or uninterested. After all, they show up weekly to learn about Jesus, but they are terrified at the thought of going to church because of all the angry, hateful, demeaning, and dehumanizing vitriol they have heard from Christians in pulpits in previous years. So next time you're about to post some feisty comment about the gays on Facebook or bemoan the gay agenda in your sermon or talk to your friends about the abomination of the gay lifestyle, perhaps one of these precious people was looking on. They are reading your posts. They overhear your conversation. They're wondering if the Christian God could possibly love them since they haven't felt this from his followers. They're seeking non-sexual embrace and warmth of Christ-like compassion. Will your rhetoric and demeanor draw them closer to Jesus or push them further away? I'll... Finish this part with one last quote from a guy called Drew Harper who said, To be gay in the American evangelical church is to be dead. You are an outcast, an orphan, a refugee, a diseased person. There has to be a better way forward. There has to be. So I think the first step in a better way forward is to think really well about this. As I said in the first week, we cannot afford to be ignorant. In our ignorance, we say silly things and we aren't engaging well in the conversation. I think by and large, we, we don't really know what we believe, but we're certain about it. Well, we know that somewhere in the Bible it says that being gay is a sin and, and so, so that sucks to be them, but I'm safe and so that's all that really matters. 
And I hear a lot of Christians saying disparaging, hurtful, and often quite ignorant things. You know, if ever we start a conversation or respond with a, they just need to, or, or we just need to tell them, please stop. So we say things like, well, you know, love the sin, I hate the sin, and I'm guilty, I've said that so many times. But, but it's so easy to just use these cheap answers and statements so that we don't have to get into the mess so that we can just stand behind the statement instead of actually hearing someone's story, listening to them, and not actually embody the truth and grace of Jesus. See, this idea of love the sinner, hate the sin, it's actually really condescending. It wrong, wrongfully positions us as clean and they are unclean. And the truth is that Jesus loved the sinner and he sat with them. Jesus loved the sinner and he ate with them. Jesus loves the sinner and gets amongst the mess, even at the risk of being misunderstood. I think we would be far better to have the posture of, of love the sinner and hate our own sin. And let's figure out what it means to follow Jesus together. I mean, if you really think about it, like love the sinner, hate the sin, how? How are you loving the sinner? Love looks like something. Love is an action. And I've heard some people say, well, just, just telling them the truth, that's love. Rubbish. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love is an action. If you're going to say that statement, make sure you love them. And it looks like something. Let's look at a few statistics. In New Zealand, young people who identify as LGBT are three times more likely to experience bullying on a weekly basis, and that bullying is more likely to be physical. One in five have attempted suicide, and over a th third thought that it would be unlikely they live past the age of 25. We're right now currently seeing a significant increase in young people identifying as trans, non-binary, gender fluid, etc., and the significantly highest amount of people identifying as bisexual is teenage girls. And from what I can see from the statistics, this drops significantly when these girls are coming into uh, late 20s, early 30s. There's lots of different opinions about why the increase of young people identifying as transgender. Um, some would say that these young people are just feeling more comfortable um, about coming out and exploring their sexuality. Um, then there, there's uh, more controversial studies like the idea of rapid onset gender dysphoria. Um, I, I have lots of thoughts and opinions on all of this stuff, but I'm actually not here to give you my opinion this morning, but to help us become a community of redemptive love, a, a community that represents Jesus well, a community that disciples people well. 
I mentioned the book, Unchristian, um, before. I want to read you some stats that I found really, really interesting from them. Uh, again, this is American, but I think we can uh, relate it to New Zealand. Or at least the point I want to make is very relevant. So there are 22.4 million LGBT commun- uh, p- people in the United States. Um, 86% of them were raised in church. 86% were raised in church. 54% of, of them will leave church, um, which is obviously far higher than, than general population. The top three reasons that uh, they leave is negative personal experiences, theological considerations, and institutional misgivings. Uh, LGBT people are, are open to returning to the church at a rate 67% higher than the general population. 67% higher than the general population. Of those that said they would consider returning 92% said they would not require their church to change its views. And only 8% said that they would only come back if the church changed its views. As I read that, I, I realized something quite significant. It's not what we believe that has been offensive. It's how we have believed it. It's not what we believe. It's how we believe what we believe that represents Jesus. What it also tells us is that most people that experience same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, they are not activists. They are not demanding that the church change its beliefs. Most are just trying to make sense of their life and are simply looking for a redemptive community that will love, that will walk with them as they discover their identity in Jesus. Are we doing okay? Um, I realize, uh, as I said last week, um, uh, the last few sermons have gone a bit longer than normal. Um, I, I can't just skip through this stuff. This is we we have to we have to, do, to we have to engage well. So apologies if I go a little bit longer this morning, but um, we're heading somewhere. I think it's important that we um, that we understand language, uh, understand well. You know, I, I've heard um, some people making jokes about LGBT and oh, all the names and blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I'm not sure what, you, what we're trying to achieve by joking and ridiculing. Um, so with regards to LGBT, we've got um, lesbian, gay, and bisexual. Uh, these are people that experience same-sex attraction or attraction to both male and female. I, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that they, by and large, did not choose this. This is not a switch they can just turn off. So someone's saying, just stop. 
is not helpful. The unanimous consensus from scientific and psychological fields are that we just simply don't know why some people experience same-sex attraction and others don't. There's a lot of things that we can put into the category of correlation, um, but not causation. Uh, someone who is transgender or identifies as transgender is simply describes a person who experiences gender dysphoria, which is like a discontentment with their biological sex. Um, the, you know, so you've got the opposite, which is euphoria, which is used to, dis to describe like a state of extreme happiness. Dysphoria is the opposite to that. It's a profound sense of unease or dissatisfaction. And, and that unease or dissatisfaction could range from just a mild discomfort right through to an extreme discomfort. Um, uh, again, on this idea of uh, like we've just got to engage better I saw a post recently, someone put on Facebook, um, you know, I'm standing for the truth. God only created male and female. And, and like that, it's just ignorance. It's just ignorance because no one is debating that people are born male and female. That's not the debate. The point is, is that they feel a genuine discomfort and dysphoria between the biological sex they were born with and, and how they feel. We, we need to understand that. See, no one that is genuinely engaging in this conversation is debating that. See, some transgender people may be gay, but many are not. The two are not the same. A gay person identifies with the gender of their biological sex and is sexually attracted to members of that same biological sex. A transgender person, however, identifies with the opposite gender of their biological sex and is attracted either to the same sex or the opposite sex. So I wanna, I wanna say this, and I think this is really important as well. If you've met one transgender person, you have met one transgender person. Just like all of us, we all have very, very different stories, and we are all shaped by the stories of our lives. We are who we are because of the story we believe about ourselves. Oh, this is why I think that discipleship is so key when we talk about this. Discipleship requires that we sit with a person, listen to them, and hear them, and walk with them. And the truth is that they are all image-bearing human beings that are deserving of love, honor, and human dignity. So when it comes to uh, the church, there are, are about four ranging views, and this could be a bit of a slide scale, um, but I want to give you these four views, and then I want to push back on a couple. Um, and this is where we're going to dive into the controversy, is that all right? All right, so, so the four views would be, uh, and again, this is a bit of a sliding scale, but um, the first view would be an, an affirming view. Uh, I don't like to use the language personally of affirming and non-affirming um, because I, 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 one category just sounds way better than the other. You know, like the non-affirming almost sounds like a, we're against you, and I just don't think that's helpful terminology. Um, but I will use it for um, the first category. So affirming. 
Um, so that would be the idea that God made me this way to enjoy partnership. Um, identity is, is gay-compelled, so it's uh, determined from feelings and behaviours. Uh, the belief and response for this view would be open and affirming, so we, we celebrate gay relationships. Um, the biblical view would be a revisionist view, um, uh, and so liberal sexual ethics. Uh, the origin would be that we are born this way and God designed it this way. Uh, the emphasis is live and let live. Um, and, and this view would be strongly opposed to healing, transformation, same-sex attracted roots, or contributing factors. So let's not dive into anything. I am who I am, and God accepts that. Um, the second view would be um, this idea of resist. Um, and so this is someone who would be um, gay identified. Now remember, I'm talking, in, these are views in the church. Um, so this would be someone who is saying, I'm choosing to be obedient with my unchangeable affliction. Um, so, uh, so their identity would be gay constrained. So they are comfortable with LGBTQ labels and identity in Christ, both at the same time. The belief and response would be um, uh, love the gay Christian as is and encourage abstinence. Uh, the biblical view for these people would be traditional biblical ethics, God affirms and loves people. Um, origin, born with this inclination, but God did not design it this way. Um, the emphasis is living a chaste, abstinent, God-centered life. Uh, in this view, also healing transformation, um, we are either silent or opposed to that. Um, the next view um, uh, would be this idea of, of renounce. Um, so it's this idea that we surrender our false identity and sinful behavior. Uh, our identity is that God conquers. We are found in Christ, but not in the struggle. The belief in a response is a call to repentance and obedience in Christ. Um, the biblical view is traditional biblical ethics. God loves us in weakness. The origin would be that, it's that, that this is primarily a sin nature issue or the result of the fall. The emphasis is support for godly living and God will sustain you. And again, silent or opposed to healing ministry, same-sex attracted relational roots and contributing factors. Um, and the last one would be this idea of rebuild, which is transformation. Um, and, it's, and it's these ideas. My hope is in Christ for a truly transformed life. My identity is God created, so found in Christ, His transforming, His transforming work in us. Belief and response, uh, repentance and discipleship towards obedience and healing. A biblical view would be a traditional biblical ethics. God loves, heals, and redeems. The origin, the, the idea would be that is both a sin nature and a developmental issue. And the emphasis is, is on godly living, relational healing, and gender wholeness and design. And it promotes hope and healing through Jesus, community, and counseling. All right, so there are the different views. Um, and I, I just want to push back on, on two of the views. And one of those views will find... Um, the idea of um, um, conversion therapy, and I know that's a pretty hot topic at the moment, lots of talk about conversion therapy and uh, whether it should be banned and that kind of thing. Um, so what I want to do is actually push back on the affirming view and on the um, conversion therapy idea and then offer a different way. Is that okay? Um, 
So the, um, first of all, I want to acknowledge that people that hold an affirming view um, are often not ignorant or biblically illiterate. I think that's kind of the view. We can just go, oh, well, they're just, you know, they're all about acceptance and that kind of thing. Many have actually wrestled with the Scriptures, and um, they are people who are super compassionate and filled with love. Nine out of ten, I believe, of, of people that have an affirming view, they would have arrived at that view because they know someone. They're actually walking with someone. Someone close to them is either gay, lesbian, trans. That They're walking with someone. They, they are feeling the pain and they are feeling the suffering and they are seeing the struggle. So these are not people that we should just go, oh, well, you know, duh. Whatever you know, these are people that are actually walking with people. I, I have a friend who um, is a pastor in Auckland, and I, I spoke. I was talking to him this week, and we were talking about this whole um, this whole idea. And he said to me, "He said, Michael, for the last two years, I have been trying to convince myself of an affirming view." I was like, "Wow, what? What's? Why is that?" He said, "My my brother-in-law um, has come out as gay." And we're walking with him. And I'm seeing the pain and the struggle. And he said, everything in me wants to say, it's all right. He said, I just can't do that. See, the reality is we feel sorry for those that are suffering and we want to ease the pain. So the reason why I want to push back on this view is that it's, it, for me it's not actually about the theology of the scriptures and looking in Romans 1 and going, well, what does this word really mean in the Greek? And do, you know, For me, it's, it's, it's simply a non-redemptive view. And I've walked with Jesus far too long to believe that he is not redemptive. So this view would elevate sexual orientation and attraction as a primary identity. You are who you are because of your story, and God simply loves and accepts that. That his love accepts but does not necessarily transform. And the issue for me is this, that it extends to basically every area of life. Ultimately, God just wants you to be happy, so he couldn't possibly be against any of your desires. See, we feel sorry for those that are suffering and want to ease the pain, but I am convinced that Jesus does not feel sorry for any of us. See, I feel so sorry for people that I can't help. But Jesus does not feel sorry. He is filled with compassion and not only offers redemption, restoration, healing, and wholeness, he also made the way for this to be possible in his death and resurrection. In him, all things are new. And if I was to push back on the idea of conversion therapy, I think that conversion therapy, uh, uh, that, that position elevates straight or normal sexuality as a primary identity. It, it usually engages in behavior modification by focusing on who a person shouldn't be rather than who a person is becoming in Christ. It makes straight the goal of discipleship and spiritual formation. So the focus is on people being fixed rather than formed. 
Uh, Listen to this, and I think we need to get our heads around this. If perfect sexuality is defined by, as heterosexuality, if that's the goal of salvation, then guess what? A large chunk of us have achieved that separate from God, and that is simply unbiblical. So in my opinion, both the affirming view and the conversion therapy view both come from bro- broken presuppositions about what is the gospel. See, if the gospel is about how do I get to heaven when I die, then the only logical question is, what's the minimum I have to do? So the focus becomes on what's required of me to get my ticket to heaven. And so the focus of repentance is repent so God changes his mind about you and gives you a ticket. You know, so that he can let you into heaven. But but this isn't the gospel. The gospel is not about us or how we get to heaven The gospel was about Jesus. He is the gospel. Jesus is not just the price or a means to an end. Jesus is not just the mechanism so that we can go to heaven. When Jesus said he is the way, he wasn't saying, I am Google Maps giving you some directions on how to get to heaven when you die. No, he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is. He is the prize. He is the goal. If you want to go to heaven one day when you die, but you aren't interested in Jesus now, (laughs) Jesus is the prize. He is life itself. See, Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about us. He came to change our minds about who He is. He came to reveal a Father who loves and, and, and repentance is saying, change your mind about how good God is. He loves you and He wants to walk with you and, and heal you and transform you and restore you into who God made you to be. Change your mind about God. See, the cross is God's mind made up about you. We read this, this morning, He has reconciled Himself to us. So now be reconciled to Him. He loves you, He wants you, He desires you, all of you. Elizabeth Woning is the the founder of an organisation called Change. She She said this, she said, Jesus is the factor that is most overlooked in the Christian debate around LGBT. Relationship with Him is the treasure that we are willing to sacrifice for. But it turns out that, that His journey is abundant. His ways overcome theory, psychology and philosophy Typically, Jesus is the last to be offered LGBT-identifying people. Instead, we are given a system of discipline to yield repentance. There is a better way forward. See, the gospel is about Jesus. The gospel is about how Jesus is God with us. Truth incarnate, that Jesus, God with us, has come to show us God's love, to reveal the heart of the Father, to reveal God's heart about who we are as humans. You know, greater love has no man than this, to lay down his life for a friend, that, that this Jesus who is truth embodied came to save us from sin, that, that he has disarmed what the enemy was using to hold us captive. He has released released the chains on that thing, that, that this Jesus has established his kingdom. Now, all things have been restored to the original identity and purpose, and, and that this Jesus has shut down religion. 
No longer is it about man trying to get to God, but this is a picture of a God who came to man and said, it is finished. Listen, Jesus didn't come to show us how broken we are and that we needed to escape our humanity. He came to show us how valuable you are and that our humanity needs redeeming. See, the love of Jesus is neither neither condoning nor condemning, but it is always redemptive. See, people don't need me. They don't need my programs. They don't need my opinion. They don't need my solution or my formula. They need Jesus. We all need Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is always redemptive. Always. When there is a reason why we have called this sexuality and the gospel. We need to get the gospel right. The gospel is about Jesus, the fact that He is Lord. And biblical love is redemptive in purpose, nature, and outworking. It speaks of restoration to God's original intent. Listen, we cannot control people into the kingdom. But we can reveal the kingdom. They can't taste and see. It's really good. See, this idea of redemption is this idea of, being, of freedom by payment of price, that a, that a slave is freed by the payment of price. And so, so if we are redeemed, what have we been redeemed from? What have we been redeemed from? On the cross, Jesus set us free from the enslavement of sin, the, de, the, the delusion that we were ever disconnected from our Creator. And so that, that means that the thing that the enemy had over us that was blinding our eyes, Jesus has broken and you might say, but Michael, I don't, I don't feel free. So this word sin is the word harmatia, and it simply means this, to not share in, to not partake in the life source of Jesus. So Peter said that we are partakers in the divine, and so sin is simply not partaking. In essence, sin is faith in self. So Paul said that anything that is not faith in God is sin. And so the problem is we focus on behavior. We think that sin is actions. So we think that repentance is some sort of behavior management. But repentance literally means to change our mind. Change our mind about who God is. Jesus said, repent and believe into Jesus. Our behavior is just always an echo of belief. What we believe about ourselves defines who we are as people. And so following Jesus simply means to believe into Him. And we're going to talk into that little word into in in the last message because I think it's so important. But we need to believe into Him and His renewed life for us. So so if we understand all that, then we we need to understand that that sin is, is a massive issue, but it is not the issue. Its power has been broken. On the cross, since power was broken, it is no longer the issue. The issue is unbelief. Do I trust Jesus? Do I believe that if I turn towards Him in faith, 
that the very thing that I was fighting for, the very thing I was looking for in others, the very thing I, thing I was trying to take from others, the very thing I was trying to create in my own effort, do I believe that I will find all of that fulfilled in Jesus? Do I trust Him? So that is the question that we are fundamentally facing every day, all of us, all of us with our sexuality, our finances, our sense of purpose and significance, with, with all of our desires for intimacy and longing and belonging. Do you trust Jesus? See, nothing is redeemed that hasn't first gone through a type of death. Nothing. Uh, 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 we, we participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which means that, that we bring all of ourselves to Him. And, and it's in, in the death of all of those things, as we bring them to Jesus and say, I surrender them to you, that they pass through death and now redeemed. That's every area of our life. And so I want to push on this a little bit this morning. If you are here this morning and you are, you've never struggled with your, with your sexual identity, maybe you know, you're, you're straight and you're going, well, that's one thing I don't have to surrender to Jesus. Lies. All of us, all of us bring our sexuality to Jesus. Nothing is redeemed that hasn't first gone through a type of death. We surrender our finances to him. Now everything that we live in is redeemed with regards to our finances. We bring our sexuality to him. Now everything is redeemed. See, it's only in our participation in the cross and resurrection that we are redeemed. Right, I'm coming to an end. Music team, come back. That'd be great. Thanks. We're going to land this thing. Elizabeth Woning, again, another quote from her. And I've got actually a handout from her that um, is on the resource table. You can take it. It's uh, a whole article, which I've just pulled a couple of quotes from. And it's, it's brilliant. So she says this. And so I am praying for a way forward for Christian LGBT identifying people to step out of that worldview, which tells us we are different from others. That message is subtly dehumanizing, causing us to forever be excluded from the larger body of humanity because of our sexual experience. At the same time, churches also need to reframe their perspectives towards us by focusing on our common humanity. Clearly, our temptations do not define us, and so congregations must become welcoming environments for spiritual maturity. We must all see the vision of restoration of our personhood that Christ offers. The goal isn't straight. The goal is human, redeemed. Then we will be free from every life-dominating behavior that draws us away from Christ's vision for human identity. Whether in singleness or marriage, only then we become the family and the body of Christ that brings healing to the nations together. Do you remember Leslie? At the start, I talked about Leslie. Leslie's story has a redemptive ending. 
Leslie, after being told to leave her church and never came back, uh, went on to transition uh, as a male and uh, eventually got married to a, a woman uh, and journeyed through life. She got right into, um, into uh, doing stage stuff for, for performances and all that sort of thing, was enjoying doing that. Um, Leslie's wife uh, had a debil- debilitating um, disease and uh, one night uh, she actually was lighting a cigarette um, and somehow the cigarette, uh, she used to shake and the cigarette fell down, I think it must have fallen down on top. Anyway, it lit her on fire and she died. Tragic, tragic way to die. So Leslie was now alone and uh, she needed to have a funeral done. So she looked up in the phone book and rung the nearest church to her. Happened to be one of the most conservative churches around. She rung them and explained the situation, explained you know, that she was a, a trans male and was married and her wife had died and said, would you, would you consider doing doing my wife's funeral. The pastor of the church, who happened to be the one that answered the phone that day, he said, it would be our honour. And then he went further and said, don't you worry about a thing, we will cover every cost. That started Leslie's journey of redemption the offer of honour and dignity, love and generosity. Leslie now works with an organisation called Lead Them Home, where she works with young people who are wrestling with their sexual identity. She loves them, helps them, and leads them to Jesus. Don't you love a redemptive story? We're going to share around communion, but I just want to um, just tell you about one other handout I've got. So I've got two handouts on the resource table that you may be interested in. Um, the one is from uh, the woman who I quoted before. Um, the other one is from a, a woman called Laurie Craig. Um, we saw her video last week. Um, played that, sorry, the audio and the video were way out of sync, but it was really powerful. But uh, she uh, has done this great article on how to walk well alongside LGBT um, people. And um, I just want to quickly go through the six things and then we're going to finish. So the, the first one is um, that we take a mirror to our hearts, asking how do I actually feel about LGBT people? The second one is know what I believe. Be clear about what you believe. Don't be ignorant. Number three is walk differently with different groups of LGBT people. If you've met one transgender person, you've only met one. Surrender to God's order of operations. 
help them take their pain to Emmanuel and become the family Jesus promised. Let's stand. We're going to gather around communion. And uh, just going to finish with some worship. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a good father. We thank you that we don't need to have all the answers. We thank you that we aren't the grinning fix-it people. We thank you that people don't need to be fixed, but we all need to be formed into your story. We thank you that you offer hope, healing, wholeness and redemption. And I pray that we would be people that embody who you are to those around us. We thank you for what you're doing in us. We thank you for what you're doing through us. And we come to you, Jesus, this morning, knowing that all of us, every one of us, need to bring all of ourselves to you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. to care.